Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the third episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with one of our colleagues, the inimitable Joy Clarkson, Plow Editor, among many other things, and with church historian Bill Highland. Joy Clarkson holds a PhD in theology from the Institute for Theology and the Arts at the University of St. Andrews. She hosts Speaking with Joy, a popular podcast about art, theology, and culture, and writes books, including her most recent Aggressively Happy, A Realist's Guide to Believing the Goodness of Life. She is a bird watcher, a book collector, and a passionate evangelist for Yorkshire Gold Tea. (laughs) She tweets at Join Us the Brave. Bill Highland is a professor of theology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, specializing in medieval church history and theology with a particular focus on monasticism, spirituality, and Mariology. Welcome, Joy and Bill. Jesus was killed on a cross. However, for 600 years, Christians shied away from representing him in his humiliation, torture, and shame. Not one of the ancient cycles representing sacred history in the life of Jesus in the mosaics of Ravenna, Rome, or North Africa contains a depiction of the crucifixion. Under Constantine, the cross became the insignia of Christian victory. On the altar or carried as a cult object in procession, it was devoid of a corpse. Indeed, it was often made of gold and studded with jewels. That's a short passage from the priest and theologian Ivan Illich, and he's writing an essay, which we'll link to in the notes, uh, among other things, on portrayals of the crucifixion. Obviously, for Christians, a turning point in human history and in art, one of the most famous moments portrayed. Today, we're going to talk about a theatrical portrayal of the crucifixion, the famous Oberammergau Passion Plays, which have been performed for centuries in Germany. Uh, But we're also going to talk more broadly about how do we portray what is, for Christians, the most sacred moment in history. So before we get into that, let's hear about the Oberammergau Passion Play. Uh, With us is my fellow editor, uh, Joy Clarkson who was in Bavaria last year and saw the play. So uh, could you could describe that for us? Uh, it's a long play, right? And a lot of people showing up there. And what's the whole background? Why did they do that in the first place? Well, lovely to be with you guys again. Um, so the the Oberammergau Passion Plays is thought to be the longest um, regularly produced amateur theatrical pro- theatrical production in the world. So it's been put on by the townspeople of Oberammergau since um, the 1600s. And it started because um, as plagues were kind of sweeping through Bavaria, this particular town made a vow to God that if he would spare their town, they would put on a production of the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ every 10 years. And so they have done fairly faithfully um, since that time, there have been a few times that they missed their 10 year mark. Once was during the Napoleonic Wars, once was um, during the actually, it was uh, due to a flu. So, the influenza after World War One, <clears throat> they didn't have the plays. And then again, during World War II. Um, but pretty much, they've kept on having this play every 10 years. It's put on by the townspeople. And there's lots of really interesting, like, once you start getting nerdy about it, there's all these funny little rules like, 
Um, you can only participate it if you are a member of the town. And not just that, but if, you, if you've been born there or you've lived there more than 10 years and you're married to someone there. So it's like, you know, you can't just move there two years before and think you can be a part of the production. It's very serious. Um, the town elects um, who will be the director. Uh, so it's a very kind of collective endeavor. And um, if you are a member of the town and you want to become a part of the play, and you're a man, then you have to stop shaving your beard on Ash Wednesday so that by the time the summer comes around, which is when they produce the play, uh, you will be thoroughly scruffy and look like you belong in the first century. Um, so it's just a really interesting thing. Um, and this year I got to go kind of on happenstance. Um, one of my friends had bought tickets with somebody else, but then the person ended up not being able to go with her. And because they bought them like two years before she was like, we have to use this ticket. So I kind of got to ride the coattails of the unfortunate situation. And we uh, took the kind of old rickety train from Munich um, up into the mountains. And it was glorious. It was, it was the end of May. So it was, uh, it was quite, it was quite warm already. I can't imagine what it would have been like in July, um, but it was beautiful and there were flowers everywhere. And we got there a day early um, and there was almost nobody there, but the next day it's just full to bursting of tourists. And that's one of the other interesting things about the play was that it didn't used to be such a tourist attraction. And then sometime in the kind of like 19th, 20th, uh, 19th, 20th century, it became this big cultural ordeal that Kings and, um, you know, interesting, um, polit uh, like, philosophical figures like Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre went and thought it was a cool thing. Um, so it kind of became a, a global thing uh, in the last century or two. Um, and it certainly was a global thing. There were um, tourist groups everywhere. They all their little flags, a lot of them were Roman Catholic. Um, and then you go and sorry, I'm, I'm gushing because it was quite a fun experience. You go and um, it is an all day affair. So apparently it used to be like 12 hours, but now it's only like five and a half hours, but you split it up so that you start in the afternoon and then you watch for two and a half hours and then you have a nice Bavarian dinner, you know, in between, and then you go and you, you finish it. Um, so that's, that's the, that's, that's a probably more detail than you intended for me to give, but that's the general background. <laughs> I mean, that sounds fantastic. And there's, I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people, uh, who went to watch the last, uh, play right in 2022 mm -hmm. i guess it was postponed from their regular uh, once every 10 year rhythm because of the pandemic mm -hmm. yeah yeah so so this sounds very charming and and old worldly and it is and of course it's in a way as you write in your piece for plowed which uh describes you know how powerful parts of the play were really encouraging uh, from a Christian point of view that so many people want to go and see the story of the passion. But you call your piece Oberammergau's Broken Vow, or at least uh, the editor of your piece did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's another side. Um, mm. And uh, we're going to get into that in a moment. Could you just describe, though, before we get there, what is the play like when, when it opens? What, what do you see? I mean, you see all these villagers with their scruffy beards being Bible characters? Yeah. Well, so the thing that's really cool about it and why I'm excited to be doing this podcast with Bill, <clears throat> who's, of course, a, a scholar of um, 
spirituality and Christianity, especially and focuses on medieval is it feels very medieval in the sense that, um, you go and I mean, there are hundreds of people in the cast. So in the opening sequence, you have hundreds of villagers and they come on, the choir comes on first, which is different from like the crowd. And they're all in these kind of outfits that could be 1600s, but also are kind of modern. And um, so it's just really, it's quite amazing. Like you, there's hundreds of people. It's very immersive. You feel like you're in the story, uh, which goes back to kind of all the devotional practices that it was connected to. And they do these really cool tableaus. So in between each scene, um, which the it's pretty much straight out of the gospels. And one of the things that is really cool about it, even though I did have my disappointments, is that it's amazing to like hear the Sermon on the Mount preached to you as a sermon rather than, mm. you know, being uh having being exposited. Um, so you have these in between the various scenes, you have like these huge life-size, very colorful, like um, <clears throat> kind of frozen pictures. So mostly from the old Testament, so you'll have like Adam and Eve fleeing the garden and there's this cool dark tree or, you know, the giving of the law. Um, and that kind of helps people supposedly connect with, um, with the, you know, the Hebrew Bible with the new Testament and kind of understanding how these stories interact. So, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Like I, I'm not a crier at, um, at plays and movies, but the opening sequence was just quite powerful. Um, with the huge amount of people there with the huge cast with the way that it immerses you in it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's unlike anything else I've ever experienced. And that communal element of it. I mean, Bill, I, I, I don't know. Um, it, it seems something that is a little more what you'd associate with ideas of sort of medieval communal, you know, religious celebration. Um, this and the whole background to it uh of this vow to perform it every 10 years uh because the town was freed from plague back in the 17th century i mean how well does this fit with the way a medieval passion play would have been experienced bill well of course we don't know all the details because the way that we do for the for the one that joy went to but I think they would have very much been communal affairs because uh, the original Passion Plays grew out of the celebration of the liturgy, particularly the Good Friday liturgy, which would have been done in church itself. And then gradually these plays were moved from the church space to sort of the public space in the towns, which far from making it less communal, just allowed more and more people to be there and experience it. So I think, so I think very much that's something in continuity with the, the medieval mystery plays. So one of the things that we should probably touch on here, although we're not going to be able to um, address it as fully as we would want to, that it would be a um, an episode in itself or more than one episode, is that um, as we sort of get into talking about it more, the the one thing that I had known about the Oberammergau Passion Play before I read your piece, Joy, was that it's notoriously, it's notoriously anti-Semitic. And, you know, this is something that Hitler apparently loved. Um, and the, the society- He said, uh, no work of art has so convincingly portrayed the Jewish menace. Yeah. And the society out of which the original sort of script um, was emerged 
was a deeply anti-Semitic society. There was, you know, um, this was a society that that did pogroms, that, that expelled Jews. And that's kind of all I knew about it. It's kind of deeply sketchy because it's anti-Semitic. Um, I didn't realize that, in fact, uh, the version that you saw had been uh, rewritten. There's kind of like two different um, angles of interest. Like the, there are two different ways in which the the vow of the play um, might be thought to be broken, and the the anti-Semitism um, seems like one version of that brokenness. But there's actually what you're focusing on is something else, something that sort of came into the play as um, the person who you know attempted to redo it took out the anti-Semitism. And so do you want to talk about just what um, what that was? What, what happened when this play was rewritten? Sure. So I guess I should just uh, take people out of their suspense and tell them why it was <laughs> called The Broken Vow, which was basically that, um, so, you know, they made this vow to portray the, the, the life, the passion, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the piece, I argue, they, they basically only portray the life and the crucifixion because in the final scene they do this kind of weird thing where um they imply that mary that the grieving mary magdalene decides that jesus lives on her heart and so that's you know that's kind of that's Mm -hmm. the end which is a funny thing because a lot of passion plays ended with the passion like bill was saying it was a it was a good friday thing and and the good friday good friday you don't go to the resurrection right you stop at the tomb so the fact that this passion play said it would it would also portray the resurrection was unique in itself um so i argued in the piece not just that but there were numerous things that the the play just kind of takes the emotional punch out of out of both the resurrection but then it also kind of almost tries to pad the viewers in acknowledging kind of the the great grief of of the crucifixion and the, the wrong that's done, um, which, you know, in our modern day, we could say, well, it's not, it's really not, uh, it would be a misreading of the situation to say that that was primarily, uh, that Jesus was, Jesus was really, you know, crucified by the empire, right? It's it's not actually, um, the, the way this has been read throughout history in terrible ways um, against Jews is not really a proper reading of it. But so that's what I meant by the broken vow in the sense that um, it doesn't portray this final piece that it that they promised they would. And I wrestled with it as I was writing because it, it is such a rabbit hole to go down if you if you want to do a bit of research on the play, um, because, you know, it should have the anti-Semitism rewritten and, and written out of it. <clears throat> that's that's a really good thing. But I wrestled with whether the um, whether um, it actually was necessary, whether the changes that made it disappointing and kind of emotionally unsatisfying were necessarily tied to making it less anti-Semitic. The other thing that's interesting is that the really anti-Semitic version, I don't think was the original. Mm-hmm. So when my impression is that when um, when the director rewrote it and the, the version that has now kind of been approved by various Jewish advisory boards, um, he actually incorporated some of the older versions. So I think that there was a, there was like a mid edit that happened Mm -hmm. around the era of Hitler loving it and thinking it was the best thing that existed. Yeah. Um, I also, I also did a little 
deep dive into the script and it was fascinating that the it seems like the very first play was a genuinely medieval play from the 1400s um which then went through a bunch of different revisions uh and it yeah. was actually weirdly enough banned by uh the king back in i believe 1780 for being insufficiently reverent to its subject matter uh, and then there was two 19th century rewrites and the super anti-Semitic one was oddly enough, uh, or maybe not, um, the one from the mid 19th century, actually not that ancient. That's what I also discovered. So was it the case that presumably the, the, the version that was not presumably the contemporary version that the one that you saw, which has Jesus being alive in Mary Magdalene's heart that that is not the way that it was originally portrayed there was so was there originally a resurrection so from the text that i've read there is a resurrection but it's it's almost just straight out of the gospels it's just mm. you know woman why are you crying and then mm -hmm. reveals himself and actually i'd be curious <clears throat> to hear bill from you did the early early um passion plays have that same i mean obviously there was huge issues with anti-semitism at various points in history but did the passion plays often have that troubling theme you mean the anti-semitism mm -hmm. yeah well with the whole growth of devotion to the passion in the high middle ages and late middle ages the dark the dark side of that at any mm -hmm. given time could be anti-semitism and that could mm -hmm. really it could really range from something that was very anti-semitic and accompanied by preaching that was very anti-semitic or it could just be a very simple, almost aside in the writings of a devotional writer, where he'll just say, you know, how his his own people rejected him and how bad that was, and then move on. But but something like that could then people could take off with that in certain contexts when there are all sorts mm -hmm. of other reasons why they were being anti-Semitic, <laughs> besides just the the moment in the passion narrative. So it was all it could always be present even in the writings of someone like bonaventure even though it's not central there could be individual lines and things like that and then when you get to how it's portrayed in art of course you can draw people in a certain way and so mm -hmm. but there could be writings alongside these meditations that would refer to the synagogue as a synagogue of beasts and things like that that of course in certain contexts public context with inflammatory preachers and things that could very much come to the fore. So mm -hmm. I, I think it was always, it's the it's what I would call the dark side of intense devotion to the passion. Any given person meditating on the passion, it may never have entered their minds, hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds of times of doing that. But others, what, be, what could almost be an aside, like look how his own people Mm -hmm. didn't care or something that could be inflamed in a certain mm -hmm. context into full-blown anti-semitism mm -hmm. that makes sense so it, it it could seem almost incidental mm -hmm. but then was not incidental in lots of contexts and you can certainly imagine how in 1950 immediately after the holocaust when you have a bunch of german villagers all shouting out the lines from the Gospel of Matthew, his blood be on us and, and on our children. Um, you know, probably literally people who had just come from the Eastern Front 
why that would have caused, you know, Arthur Miller, Leonard Bernstein and all to protest, protest the play so vigorously. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things from, from what you guys have described is the way that this is going to sound incredibly banal, but it is interesting the way that the, the rewriting of the play, you know, throughout, throughout time reflects the concerns and the sort of sense of what we're doing here of that time. And it seems to me that the question that your piece asks joy implicitly is, is there a way to have a, a version of the passion play or a version of a portrayal of, of the crucifixion that doesn't soft pedal the resurrect that doesn't soft pedal, like the supernatural aspects of the story that is faithful to the center of what we believe as Christians and yet doesn't bring on board the, the antisemitism that had historically at various points, although not universally been attached to it. But doesn't, this, in, the, yeah. doesn't the problem, as Joy writes about it, the problem actually starts quite a bit earlier before the resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, st- you, you noted getting a little uncomfortable well before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things, the thing that I think was wrong with the play, if you want to put it that way, from, a, from an artistic standpoint, not from like a, a ideological standpoint, was just that... Um, it shied away from anything religious. The The most powerful point of, of the play, I think, was actually the reading of the Shema. That was a really, that's a really powerful and the most kind of almost sacramental, if you want to call it that moment of the play, I think. Um, but it, they did little things like they would take out when Jesus says, this is my, uh, at the Last Supper, um, they took out the part where he says, this is my body this is my blood. So they, they kind of took away that, that element of it. So they, they just kind of tucked away that awkward supernatural thing. And then, um, yeah, there were just various moments where it just turned away from the possibility of belief. And I want, I, I think that that was the thing that I thought, I think I can understand needing to change big parts of this to, um, to make sure that it is not anti-Semitic and to atone for that in some way, right? Like maybe there's a, a level of aestheticism necessary to atone for how this how this was portrayed in the past. But it felt like it took away the supernatural parts, both of the Jewishness of Jesus and of the, the narrative that Christians believe in a way that made it a difficult narrative to watch. And, um, and the thing that was, and that to me took away the, best part of medieval in my mind medieval devotional practices and medieval things concerning the passion which is this space where you're allowed to encounter profound emotion um emotions like fear and grief and loss and compassion and empathy and by taking away all of the supernatural moments but also all the painful moments so like when jesus is literally getting crucified he's like don't worry about it told you this would happen and 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 then his and his followers are all like, it's okay. He told us this would happen, but that's not what's in the gospels, right? In the gospels, they're confused and upset, and um, and when he's lost, they're devastated. And so I think that was what I felt. Those were kind of the two things I felt were missing. One was the willingness just to let 
sad things be sad. Um, and then an unwillingness to engage with the idea that there actually might be a God, whether that was in a Christian way or in a Jewish way. Mm-hmm. Does that ring true to you, Bill? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at medieval devotion to the passion, which of course is very diverse, but you think of some of the classic forms like the hymn Stabat Mater about Mary standing at the foot of the cross. There's nothing, there's nothing banal or sort of just blithe reassurance or <laughs> at those moments at all. It's it's quite the opposite. You're encouraged to take the the pain and the suffering very seriously in themselves, mm-hmm. that they're real things that are actually that are actually happening and are horrible. Mm-hmm. That are they're horrible things. And they're not just they're not meant to be kind of blithely dismissed. Mm-hmm. It's quite the opposite. You're 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 encouraged to enter emotionally um, into the scene, um, not just as kind of a historical exercise of the imagination, but because on on the deepest level of the heart, you are taking the suffering very seriously. And mm-hmm. of course, this is a whole other thing we could talk about if you want. It's a way for people to actually contextualize their own suffering. Mm-hmm. and take that seriously and the high idea that they have a high priest who understands mm-hmm. what that means i mean i'm so tempted to draw a kind of like connection um and i don't know if this is a legitimate connection between the unwillingness between the the author of the new scripts unwillingness to genuinely grapple with the, both the grief and awfulness and the supernaturalism of the story and his attempt to deal with the anti-Semitism in a kind of um, erasing way. So obviously, you know, obviously it is appropriate to take away the anti-Semitism from the play itself, but it seems that the kind of contemporary mindset that it sounds like the the author of the play, the new author of the play um, pretty much embodied it it sounds to, i mean it's, it's always seemed to me that like the solution to a sin a real evil like anti-semitism um is to kind of either make it be not that bad or make it be unforgivable or make it be just snipped out of history um there's and and it seems to me that the promise of um you know of of both the awfulness of Christ's suffering and of the supernaturalism of the gospel, like the actual, the, the resurrection is that you can face an evil like anti-Semitism and like the crucifixion of our Lord and not flinch away from it, not try to pretend that it's something else. Um, there's a kind of niceification is that's kind of how it, it sounded to me um, that you described the, the changes that were made joy, a sort of um, a, a, a niceness. I was to say quickly, I think that was something, um, the the vibe you come off with from the current play, and I have heard other people who went to it and had a similar feeling, is like this kind of narrative of Jesus was a nice teacher mm-hmm. um, who, was, um, who was killed for being a nice teacher, and we can take inspiration from that. But I think what I want to say about that arc through history and 
you know, when we think about people like, you know, whoever we might, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or whatever, if you think of that kind of arc, I don't think we need to say that their deaths are inspirational, right? They're bad, they're evil, they're a, they're a great sorrow. And and I think we can say the same thing, you know, as Christians, we can say the the joy of the Christian faith is that this arc that happens throughout all history happened even to God and it wasn't the end. Um, but in saying that, you don't need to say that the death or the loss was um, was something other than a death and a loss. You know, it's like Bill was mm-hmm. saying, it's a real suffering. It's something that is actually happening, something that the appropriate response to is grief. And mm-hmm. I think, um, I think that's something we have to be able to admit in the face of mm-hmm. of sin and of of terrible things, um, as you say, Susanna. Um, you had discussed a little bit earlier um, some things that you had read. Um, actually, I think that Pete had also read about the uh, author of the play. It, the I forget director, Christian Stuckel. Dire- yeah, yeah. Can you just sort of talk a little bit about what those, what the result of those, that deep dive was? Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's pretty clear. So he's um, an interesting guy. He's uh, been the one who was, I believe, first in 2000, uh, was asked to take on the play, and they were still in the process of cleaning up things that uh, the Jewish advisors uh, to the play were suggesting be changed. And he, bit by bit, um, reworked the play. This latest version is the most reworked, there's a bunch of interviews with him where he's pretty open about the fact that he uh, wants to de-church the play. Um, there is also a, a Professor Ludwig Mödel, who is a Roman Catholic a professor of theology, who is advising him. And, uh, you know, of course, the background is that the Catholic Church itself in the 1970s told them they had to revise the play, right? I mean, just for the record, they said, you have to get this up to date with the Vatican's teaching and Nostra Aetate regarding uh, the relationship of the Christian church to the Jewish people. Uh, and the Vatican actually with, uh, refused to give permission to the play uh, in the 70s until they would do that. So they've been chipping away at it. Um, so Christian Strickle has been very busy on that, but he, he deliberately said, I wanted to show um, the Jesus that reaches out to the poor, the widow, um, the marginalized. He said, with lines in the gospel, like um, the one where Jesus says, if a grain of corn does not fall into the earth and die, um, he said, I don't know where to start with a line like that. So I, I basically just kind of left it out. And, and mm-hmm. I think um, w- when you get to the the institution of the, the Lord's Supper, um, that was also a deliberate choice to leave out sort of the words of institution that will be familiar from any Christian liturgy of, of, of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then likewise, um, with the resurrection, um, he was asked, what are we going to do with the resurrection? He said, well, I, you know, I decided just to show Mary Magdalene coming and saying he is risen. And uh, how trustworthy is she? 
you know, I, I leave it up to you. I love that because, you know, as a Christian woman, I find it quite wonderful that the first person to, you know, preach the gospel to say Christ is risen is a woman whose testimony wouldn't have been counted in her time. So I love that this, like this liberalization of it uh, results in the same yeah. attitude that would have been held towards women, which is, is she trustworthy? She's probably just, in yeah, her and I mean, that yeah. is in fact, that, that is in fact how she was originally responded to. And, is, and, yeah. but cause we haven't seen the reality, right? At least as the gospel tells it of, of Jesus meeting her, mm-hmm. all we're left mm-hmm. with is her bare assertion that he is risen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, but no, in the I mean, play, you're actually shown the opposite. She does not see Jesus. And then she just goes and tells everybody. Oh my gosh. So it is that, that is interesting though, that that interview does reveal what I intuited, which was just that anything that was kind of difficult, you know, uh, you know, when the, when the disciples say this is a hard teaching, anything that's a hard teaching, whether it's the institution of the Lord's supper or the fact that we all have to die, um, or the resurrection is just kind of, he, it's just like, he just didn't want to engage. Mm-hmm. Just a little housekeeping before we continue with the rest of our discussion. Heads up, we have a new format. As opposed to each episode containing two segments, we're switching to just one segment per episode. But you're not getting any less content. Rather than having six weeks on and six weeks off, we're just going to be giving you an episode every single week. There will also continue to be plow reads, audio versions of our articles, however, which you'll be able to access through the same channel. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Joy Clarkson and Bill Highland after the break. So there's this broader question. Um, uh, you mentioned the play doesn't really portray the suffering, that it's actually a passion that's not sad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and here, Bill, it would, be, it would be great to hear a little more about the development of, you know, the devotion to the passion. Uh, we started with this quote uh, from Ivan Illich, where he's observing how the early Christians uh, didn't portray the crucifixion. Um, obviously, that changed by the time of Bonaventure. So what, what happened? What was that whole um, <clears throat> tradition that this play is, is kind of coming at the end of? Well, we don't always know exactly what happened in people's minds. But we do, we can follow the literature to some degree and the art. And we know that by the by the early 11th century, and some people have linked this to various feelings about what may not have happened at the turning of the millennium, um, but it's hard to say. But we do know that gradually throughout the 11th century, and definitely by the beginning of the 12th in writings of someone like Anselm, who had very influential prayers and meditations, there was a growing emphasis in general, not not in a change of doctrine, but a a devotional emphasis on what we might call the humanity of Christ. And that would mean thinking about every aspect of his life, including the idea that he was a baby, that he was nursed by his mother, he he grew up, et cetera, and all those sorts of things. But of course, the the ultimate taking the humanity seriously when people reflected on it was was the passion and the suffering and how awful it was and what should our response be to that. 
And it's clear from, from very early on that people more and more began to emphasize that one had to have an emotional response for it to have meaning. Um, it wasn't just an intellectual idea, like, yes, Christ died for us, let's move on, and we know that he died for us, etc. And how do we talk about that theologically? That People never stopped doing that, but along with it, the idea that for it to have meaning for you personally, it had to engender some sort of emotional connection, what they would have talked about as not just knowing it with the head, but feeling it in the heart. And so that that would go along with everything, really, from the whole passion account, really, from the events of, of Thursday through the crucifixion and the burial, taking really as time passed, more and more taking literally every moment of that very seriously and thinking about what it meant. So, so this was part of an arc, really, from the 11th century on of emphasizing not just the suffering of Jesus, but the emotional response of people around him. So we have very beautiful poems about the tears of Mary Magdalene in the 12th century. And of course, um, the Virgin Mary, right? His mother, his mother witnessing all this. As bad as it was for other people to witness it, what would it be like for someone's mother to be standing there witnessing this? So the Stabat Mater poem. That's a that's a great that's the most famous expression of it. It was written by a Franciscan. Some say it was written by Bonaventure. Uh, it's hard to say. It doesn't in a sense it doesn't really matter right now. It comes out of that same the Franciscans. They did not start the meditations on the passion by any means. It had preceded them, but they really, they took it to another level, you might say. And the example of Francis himself, the stigmata, et cetera, was very, was very important for that. So the idea was, so to just, to get into the whole mindset, the sufferings of Christ, the mental anguish of those who had to witness the suffering, and to imagine yourself, excuse me, as one of them. And so and, this was a big trajectory of emphasizing the humanity of Christ with all the implications of that. And this kind of requires or implies um, a, a, a move towards art in a way, because naturally, if if what we're trying to do is experience not just an intellectualized or you know highly drawn out philosophical account of how the impassable God became passable, but in fact, experience that and, and um, experience ourselves as, you know, various of, of the disciples experience ourselves, um, you know, truly responding to this reality as in a fully human way, the way that we do that basically is art. That's what, that's what we do. And so, and once you start looking, trying to, um, you know, make art that it, that describes and calls out of us, um, that moves us, that makes us, you know, respond with passion in in the technical sense that that moves us from the outside. Um, you're going to get bad art. So, whenever you have an attempt to do that, you're going to have an imperfect attempt. And one of the things that I'd just love your guys' reflection on is, you know, this is this was an imperfect attempt. This play. 
was it, should it not have been done? Like, what do we do with imperfect attempts to portray this? It depends on how you want to define the word bad. <laughs> um, because people make art because it has meaning to them in a particular <clears throat> time and place. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily thinking what people will think of it 300 years later or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the, the change in art that began around the year 1000 that began to show Christ dying or dead on the cross, it's the same art that began to show Jesus looking like a real baby Mm -hmm. on Mary's lap, etc. It's all part of the same thing. And one can talk about it, whether it's good art from a technical standpoint. And one can also talk about it based on the effect it's supposed to have on those looking mm -hmm. at it. I think going off of that, um, I would say that I think our concept of what art is, is quite modern. Like, I don't think that, I think maybe prior to like, I think it's a you know, a gradual change, but having the idea of art that was just created to create something beautiful, that's really quite a modern idea. Like really, when you look at medieval art, they weren't like, I'm going to create an artwork. There was a specific purpose. And often the purpose was to either help you worship, to help you know a Bible story, or to help you feel things. And so the judging it based on kind of the idea of art that we have now just kind of i think is is a different thing and i think that actually creates kind of an interesting way to think about how to engage with art now because if you think about the purpose of these works of art not as creating some kind of just nice aesthetic object but instead as being something that's supposed to have um there's a great uh book i can't remember the name of by sarah mcnamer but she talks about the fact that these these works of art you know whether it was a crucifix or a passion plate, they were meant to do serious practical work, right? So the question mm -hmm. wasn't, isn't, is this beautiful mm -hmm. or is it perfect, but is it doing the serious practical work of helping me to engage with mm -hmm. the passion and draw closer to Jesus? And so in that way, I think, you know, Bill, uh, and this is <laughs> kind of a diff difficult tale to chase, but a part of what you might say about the imperfect attempt is, um, you know, what kind of posture is this work of art inviting you into? Uh, is it inviting you to be close to Jesus? Is it inviting you to hate a certain people group? And that's something you can actually, uh, I think, engage with more mm -hmm. than than the question of is it good art or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would also say that I don't. I think that I don't think that this the Obramagal play is now has the same goals. Like if you think of it as mm -hmm. as the original thing, having this serious practical work to do of helping you draw close to Jesus and share in his his suffering. One of the things, and I'll stop rambling, that's really central to this, to the art in this kind of devotional movement is the idea of compassion, which literally means to suffer with. Mm -hmm. And when you said, Peter, that it's a passion without suffering, it's not without suffering there. It's a very violent, like, you know, a very kind of um, visceral play. You do see him be beaten. You do see him be put on the cross. And those are really difficult things. But it's a play without compassion. It's it's a play that kind of wants to stop you from suffering with him too much because it keeps on telling you it's fine. His 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 people knew it's going to be okay. And so it's almost like it gets in the way of what the goal of a passion play mm -hmm. was meant to be, which is to have you witness Christ's suffering and take it in as your own. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there wasn't suffering, but that it's <clears throat> that that it almost discouraged you from engaging with it too much. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So 
what would you say the goal of the version of the play that you saw is or was? Um, I think it's a cultural artifact. You know, it's something that has been produced over and over again that has kind of a living aspect to it, that it's continuing to evolve and respond to the time that it's in. And it's it's an aesthetic object mm-hmm. in this. Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense that it is a, I don't think it was primarily created for piety or mm-hmm. was it, it's really funny, actually, after after this, we got we went into um even I don't think it was created for piety, even though you have tons of these groups that literally are kind of like piety um, centric, you know, all these lovely Catholic tour groups. I asked, a, they, they went into the intermission right after the last supper. And I asked one of the Catholic priests, what did you think about the fact that they didn't have the institution? And he was like, oh, I didn't even notice. And which, yeah. <laughs> which I thought maybe they hadn't included it out of respect for mm-hmm. the liturgy, but I don't think that was the case. So yeah, I think, I think it was an aesthetic object. Mm. that has some cultural value to change our tax slightly and this is getting perhaps just uh, too adventurous but i'd be interested to find out i mean i'd like to kind of contrast that to two works of art on the passion that were clearly done for a devotional purpose um and one is famous from the Middle Ages, um, Matthias Grunewald's Isenheim um, altarpiece. And the other is musical, which is more immersive. So um, Johannes Bach's uh, St. Matthew Passion, or you could take the St. John Passion as well. Um, what is it about those artworks that do us invite us in? And maybe by way of distinction, how is that different from say Mel Gibson's passion movie, which many pious uh, Christians also uh, went to see when it came out. I've never actually, I'm gonna say this, I've never actually seen the passion because I've heard that it's gratuitously violent um, and slightly anti-Semitic. Is that, am I wrong? That is what uh, lots of people said when it came out, yes. I'm seeing shaking and nodding, well, like agreeing heads. Um, I've also never seen it for for that reason. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, what I love about, I love the St. Matthew Passion. And what I love about the way he uses the chorale is they literally open it up by saying, come daughters, help me lament. So it literally invites you to enter this story and to grieve over Jesus' death. You're not a, it's not a spectacle that you're witnessing. You're not witnessing this violent spectacle. You are a participant in the grief that transpires, which seems different to me than whatever is going on with Mel Gibson. Yeah. And if you're whatever Mel Gibson, but if you're looking at the painting you refer to, the Grunewald, um, well, I mean, this might sound silly, but you're not watching a movie. Um, mm-hmm. You're not you don't you're not dragged along to watch mm. a video representation. Um, I think there's a reason why the New Testament is not a video, besides the fact that it was two thousand years ago. It's it's written in a particular way that is the opposite of having like a film of the first century. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're standing and looking at a painting of the crucifix it just focuses your attention in a completely different way than if you're trying to follow 
a graphic film that just is portraying violence in a supposedly realistic way. I think it it just it enables you to have a totally different idea of what concentration means and and focusing yourself internally on something that is deliberately not a film and moving along. So I think it's a it's a profoundly deeper experience to meditate on a painting like Grunewald than it is to sit and watch any any modern movie about the passion, let, let alone Gibson's thing, which is just immersing you in all this violence at a pace that is the opposite of meditative. And by the same token, box box pieces, <laughs> these constant invitations to meditation, right? I mean, that's exactly. what the, the R is, are um, interspersing, uh, where you just sit there and think for six, seven minutes uh, about, you know, the the, the woman um, in Bethany washing his feet, right? Um, and you have to stop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does seem to me that the experience of listening to something like um, the St. Matthew Passion or looking at a piece of devotional art, what it literally does is make room for and kind of invite your own prayer. Like mm -hmm. it, it literally does that. There's, there's no time to, you know, I've, I've at various points in my life found myself praying while watching movies, but it, there's not really, it's not easy and it doesn't invite it. These are artistic forms that make literally make space for prayer and make space for a kind of um imaginative experience of yourself um in that story which is uh, sort of where we started uh, this is yeah, a really invite, yeah go ahead just say it invites you into a different posture yeah i think this is a very probably can of worms question that we probably don't have time to get into but i just was interested in um whether you bill had a or, or you, Joe, I had sort of a thought about it. You mentioned, Bill, at the beginning that you thought that possibly some of the difference, the, um, the kind of interiorization or subjectivization or um, drive towards like um, portraying Christ as suffering was potentially the result of the him not coming back in the year 1000 or 1033 or, or the expectation of the millennium that was, that was, um, that didn't happen. That that's interesting. And I wonder whether you could say more about that or, you know, speculate otherwise about why, what that change was, because there does seem to be, it almost seems to be, yes, it's, it's a new way of relating to Christ, but it also seems to be a new way of kind of understanding the human self. Um, which I don't think is totally discontinuous with earlier ways of understanding, but does seem to be, you know, we're getting towards the modern self in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it's a big question, but apart from the millennial issue, which is very hard to prove, I mean, when all is said and done, you might have, you have one or you have a few writings of certain monks and certain contexts talking about, most people probably didn't really know what year it was, <laughs> for example. They didn't have like calendars in their house and things like that, but they would have heard. But I think um, the last thing that you said, historians have talked about a lot how by the late 11th century, perhaps because of changing social uh, situations in, in Europe and Latin Christendom, 
the growth, the growth of towns, the growth of different types of consciousness, civic and otherwise. People, a famous historian once talked about uh, the discovery of the individual mm -hmm. as being something that in the 12th century um, was present and talked about in almost every area of, of written life. For instance, discovery of the importance of human intention, say in the sacrament of penance, uh, intention among criminals and understanding the law in terms of what was the intention, et cetera. And you begin to have autobiographical writings again. And so there's lots of different things uh, that seem to point toward, in a sense, the birth of the modern individual, even though, mm -hmm. of course, it was very different than it had nothing to do with, say, modern ideas of rugged individualism or anything like that, because the individualism was very much still experienced in a communal context, mm -hmm. whether it was the town or the guild or the monastery or the family. But nevertheless, there's no doubt that, at least historically, this growing emphasis on the on the individual and their place in the world is is changing at the same time as as art is becoming more realistic mm -hmm. uh, mostly religious art like i say pictures of the virgin and child or or the crucifix but also portraits are beginning mm -hmm. they're in the, uh, beginning to actually look like people as opposed to just the idea of what a king or a saint should look like and things mm -hmm. like that so there's a massive thing going on when this shift in devotion is happening. Mm -hmm. It's all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's um, so there's no doubt that the consciousness of the interior life of the individual person mm -hmm. was something that was being widely addressed across society in a way that was just very different than how mm -hmm. it had been talked about in the early Middle Ages. There's no doubt about that. Yeah exact relationships between it all it's all happening at the same time so it's it's very difficult to sort that out but there's no doubt mm -hmm. that this growing emphasis on the humanity of christ and mary and the people in the stories um is happening when people are also paying more attention to what we might what today we would call the psychology of people mm -hmm. it does seem to me that you know as much as i hate the sort of dark ages trope there it does all it does also seem to be the recovery of something um because obviously you can see that you know attention to the the specific personhood of the the subject of a, a bust or something in classical and especially late classical um you know sculpture and someone like augustine is obviously extraordinarily familiar with the workings of his own mind and and sees himself as if there was ever someone with main character syndrome um i mean i love augustine but no, it does true. seem to be, yeah, it does seem to be the recovery of something that was lost for a couple of hundred years. Um, yeah, well, and, when you yeah. look at, yeah, when you look at the literature in the early Middle Ages, like something like Beowulf or something, mm -hmm. you have, you have a choice, but your choice is, will I be a brave warrior or will I run away? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words, you have, you do have choices. Will I be Will I be faithful to my spouse or will I be an adulterer? In other words, you can be good at what your job mm -hmm. is. And there's certainly room for those basic decisions. Um, but that's really different, isn't it, than thinking about people defining themselves in mm -hmm. terms um, 
their their communal responsibilities, but also what their interior life. Mm -hmm. And people have a lot more. It's could go into it a lot more, but there's all different types of organized religious life beginning in the 12th century that mm -hmm. gives people a lot more choices, mm -hmm. men and women, about what sort of lives they want to lead. So absolutely. I mean, that doesn't mean that early medieval people didn't have complex thoughts, mm -hmm. I'm sure. <laughs> but the whole the whole culture that we have, the, the literary and artistic survivals, mm -hmm. don't that isn't what they thought they should be talking about when they mm -hmm. produce art. Mm -hmm. That might be a good way to put it. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So um, as a way of sort of wrapping this up, do you guys want to just give our readers your suggestions for, as well as the um, uh, Grunewald altarpiece that we discussed and the Box St. Matthew Passion, what are the pieces of art that you would suggest for Lenten devotion, um, for entering, for doing that thing that people started to do more um, in the 11th century for entering into an experience of Christ's suffering through these artistic means? What is the good form of what the Oberammergau Passion Play was meant to do? Yeah, I could say, um, I would say two things that are kind of a I would say maybe a work by Bonaventure called The Tree of Life, mm -hmm. which covers the whole life of Christ, but characteristically, a third of it is about the passion. Mm -hmm. But that that's kind of a it's kind of an early masterpiece <clears throat> about how to meditate on these things, mm -hmm. but it's not it's not burdensome or too long like some mm -hmm. later things can get. So I would recommend that. And again, I just think um um listening to some beautiful versions like Palestrina of the Stabat Mater mm. and um having having like an Eng a Latin and English text mm -hmm. in front of you while mm. you do it at, at least for part of it but other times just to close your eyes and and let it and I think mm -hmm. I would say not to go on too long but something like Palestrina very classic but then Arvo Pert mm -hmm. uh, Modern, he has a very different but very powerful version of the Stabat Mater. What I when I used to teach this, I would play a few minutes of really different versions of it, like a medieval mm -hmm. one, a Baroque one, and then Arvo Pert. And I think to take some time with that hymn, um, both reading the text but then just putting it aside, because the last thing I'll say is we have to remember that most people in the Middle Ages who meditated on this art couldn't read. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole yeah. other dimension, isn't it, of of what they got out of things and how important it was. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'll stop there. How about um, you, Joy? I knew I knew Bill was going to say Bonaventure because he introduced me to Bonaventure and is is part of the one of the main reasons for my deep love of Bonaventure. I'm going to suggest um, Julian of Norwich uh, and her revelations, her meditations and Revela revelations of divine love. I think we don't often think this, but that text really did grow out of uh, an era of devotion to the passion. And so when she's, I, I went to a talk recently that helped me kind of think about this, but when she's meditating through these visions that she has about Christ and his suffering, she's doing it in the line and in the, in the kind of tradition of people like Bonaventure. And this was actually meant to be read aloud I've, mm. is what the talk I was at recently. So it's meant wow. to be this kind of communal experience of meditating through Christ's suffering. And I think that's a really interesting one when you come to the question of anti-Semitism, because she, she has this moment where she's like, I looked to see 
if the Jews were enemies, but I couldn't see that they were enemies. I don't think they were. Um, and so that's an interesting kind of um, uh, juxtaposition to maybe some of the tensions and some of the other passion narratives. Um, but I just also love how much she she looks at Christ's suffering. She shares in it. She identifies it with her own suffering in this mm-hmm. deeply and intimately personal, but also philosophical way. She's such a um, a profound thinker. Um, I mm-hmm. think it's easy to put people like Julian in a box as, you know, just devotional, but she's devotional and theological and all those things are happening mm-hmm. together. So she, that, she that's my commission. She should be a doctor of the church, I think. She should be a doctor <laughs> of the church. <laughs> I agree. <clears throat> well, thank you guys so much. There are some uh, suggestions for your own Lenten devotional practices, listeners. Um, and we just were very grateful to you guys for giving us the time and um, for writing this piece together. And we will have a link to it in the show notes and as well as to all the other things that you suggested and that we've discussed. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. It's been a great talking and great to meet you, Bill. Great to meet you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more.